In our text, in Acts chapter 9, we are following up the conversion of a man named Saul. Last week, he came to know Jesus. Okay, he got saved last week, and immediately following that encounter, what we see happen next is we see Saul getting incorporated into the church. Awkwardly, strangely, with some reticence, nevertheless, getting incorporated into the life of the church. And it was because the Spirit of God worked uniquely through a few individuals and because everyone involved ultimately recognized the grace of God at work, we read about Saul being united into the New Testament church. And when he is, Luke writes in our text, the last verse, we'll read it together in just a minute, one of these wonderful summary statements about the state of the church, about the church being established and thriving. It's really a glorious thing. Let's read our text together. I'm in Acts chapter 9. I'm going to start in verse 19b, and we'll read through verse 31. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus. This is Saul, whom we're reading about here. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenist, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And here's the summary statement I referred to. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. A beautiful picture of the church. The text is showing us how Saul's life had been made new entirely with all new things in his life and how he was able to get then incorporated into what we know as the church. What I hope to communicate to you is best said by Edmund Clowney in his book entitled The Church where he writes this. 
The good news of Christ's coming includes the good news of what he came to do, to join us to himself and to one another as his body, the new people of God. I don't know if in your heart and in your mind you have a strong connection between knowing Christ and belonging to his church. I hope you will by the time we're finished with our gathering today and that you see the glory of that and the wonder of it and that you experience. Our text is pointing out a few things that are new now that Saul has become a Christian. So that's going to form our outline for this morning. First is Saul's new message. Second will be Saul's new enemies. And third will be Saul's new friends. So let's begin with Saul's new message. First, Saul had an old message. Eliminate and destroy anything and anyone who opposes God's law and God's temple. That was his mission in life. That was the rule that he was living by. And as he saw it, by not being able to identify and see the glory of Christ, as he saw it, the followers of Jesus fit into this category. Christians were the enemy. Christians needed to be eliminated. And he was on a zealous and violent mission to persecute any and all followers of Jesus until he himself was apprehended by God. The old King James Version uses that term in Philippians 3.12 when Paul is describing this event. He says that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. In our ESV version that we're using, it says Christ Jesus made me his own. The apprehender became the apprehended, and he was now apprehended by the Lord. That's how Saul described what happened to him on the road to Damascus. And with that, Saul has a new message. It said immediately he began proclaiming Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God. Saul, meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus, he left that interaction, that encounter, understanding Jesus to be the Son of God. Later in Galatians, he writes that God was pleased to reveal his Son to me. Now, when I say Son of God, and we read that in our Bibles, to most of that, that is probably one of the most common titles we use for Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. We might not think too much about that phrase. But for Saul, who prior to this did not recognize who Jesus was, but was a student of the Old Testament and knew the book very well, that phrase, Son of God, had a broader meaning. It was not limited to Jesus. He knew his Bible well. And that phrase, sons of God or son of God, meant several things, beginning with the people of Israel. In the book of Exodus, uh, chapter 4, God is talking to Moses, and he says, Say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Let my son go, that they may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn, firstborn son. So sons of God, son of God, they're the people of Israel, the children of Israel. 
Kings were often referred to as the son of God. Solomon, in, as David's son in 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Then referring to David in Psalm 89, verse 20, I have found David my servant, and then in verse 26, he shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. But interestingly enough, in the New Testament, when Jesus comes, Jesus teaches something unique about sonship. In John chapter 8, he is debating, discussing, teaching with Pharisees who are looking at their lineage under Abraham and saying, we are sons of Abraham. And Jesus takes them to task and says, no, you could not possibly be sons of Abraham because you hate me and are trying to seek to kill me. Abraham would not do that. Abraham could not do that. So therefore, you cannot be sons of Abraham. In fact, he goes as far as to say, no, you're actually sons of your father, the devil. That's who your dad is. You are sons of of the devil, that's why you oppose me and are seeking to kill me. In other words, Jesus taught that sonship was a declaration not about lineage, not about bloodlines, but about obedience. You can tell whose son you are by how you live. In other words, you are called the son of based on whom you obey, whom you follow, how you live your life. That determines your sonship, biblically speaking. Now, in the New Testament, we know that Jesus is declared to be the Son of God in Matthew 17 at the Transfiguration. So there, Jesus is glorified on the mountaintop, and he's standing next to Moses and Elijah, representing the law and the prophets. And this voice from God, this voice from heaven, booms down in that event and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Saul's new message is beginning to take shape as he recognizes Jesus as the son of God. You remember last week, he's on the road to Damascus and he is stopped in his tracks struck blind, falls to the ground, and he is confronted with the living Jesus who says to him, why are you persecuting me? Okay, oops. Saul realized in that moment he is on the wrong side of this equation. He's fighting for the wrong team. He's thinking himself to be zealous for God, actually, he's opposing God. He thought if he was zealous for God and obeyed God's laws, he would be a son of God. And now, as Jesus confronts him, he realizes, I am not a son of God. I'm on the wrong team. I'm on the wrong side. I'm opposing the one I thought I was serving, I'm in the wrong. But he was facing the true son of God. In a moment, he realized, I am not a son of God. 
but I'm being confronted by the Son of God. His gospel begins to formulate his understanding of a righteousness outside of himself. And later he writes, oh, in Galatians, he says, the law, as it turns out, was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. He writes in Romans chapter 3, now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. No longer was he going to obtain his righteousness by his own obedience. But he's confronted with the Son of God who is providing for him, who is the one, who is his righteousness, whom he can attach himself to by faith. Everything in Saul's life had just been reframed. The full and the rich and complexity of this new message was now governing his life. And it was easily summarized with this simple statement. Jesus is the Son of God. He was not just rattling off a quick title of Jesus. That meant something to him. Jesus was the obedient one. Jesus was the one who obeyed the Father entirely. Jesus was the one who fulfilled the law. Jesus is the one who stood in my place, and I could not stand in that place. His gospel was formulating. It was becoming clear to him. That was his message. Friends, is it yours? Is it yours? Is that your new message? Do you have that new message governing your life? Can I ask you a couple questions to diagnose your soul? Do you struggle with being good enough? Do you struggle with being good enough? Do you need a new message? Are you devastated at your own failures and sins? Does it crush you when you fail? Are you living in this new message? Or are you living in the old one? Are you at peace with God? And please don't answer too quickly. If you want to quickly say yes, why do you say yes? Based on what? What has established your peace with God? You're a good person? A nice person? That is not warranting peace with God. You are not at peace with God simply because you declare yourself to be at peace with God. You are at peace with God because Christ has made peace for you with God. And your confidence in what he has done is the only true way for you and I to have peace with God. Well, here's another one. Do the sins of others lead you only into impatience and aggravation? In other words, you can't stand what's wrong with other people. So, what message are you living in? The old message or the new message? Maybe you need the new message. Maybe you've had the new message, but you forgot the new message, and you've drifted back into living in the old message. 
and you need to be reminded, which is why we gather every week, to remind one another of that message, that new message. Oh, Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of God. And it's made all the difference. Saul's new message of the grace of God found in Jesus, the Son of God, was now his to live by, and it's ours as well. And it made all the difference in his life. That was Saul's new message. Point number two, Saul's new enemies. Okay, his old enemies were people like you and me, Christians anywhere, everywhere. They were the problem and those were his enemies, and his methods of getting at his enemies were assertive and violent. He was hunting them down. They needed to be eliminated. Eliminate your enemies. That was how he lived. But his new message and his new life meant new enemies. Now his old friends became his new enemies. Saul had defected. Saul had deserted. Saul had left the cause and joined the enemy. So now all his old classmates, his school buddies, his Hebrew school buddies and his co-workers, now he had defected away from that tribe, and now he finds himself at odds with them. He's fighting with them. But his methods now are entirely different. He's not trying to apprehend his enemies. He's not trying to imprison his enemies. He's not trying to eliminate his enemies. He's seeking to win them. He is reasoning. He is appealing. He is arguing. He is debating. He is proving that Jesus is the Christ. He's pulling out passages from the Bible to show that he could, what he could not see before, but prove to them that Jesus is the Son of God. Of God. The persecutor has become the persuader. It says that they were amazed and confounded. First, they were amazed because could this be real? Could this guy really have done such an about face? This guy who hated Christians was persecuting the church. Could he possibly be on their team? That would be amazing. And it also says, as he was debating them, that he confounded them. Now, that word in the Greek of confounded is very useful, which could be used to describe anything from bewildered to extremely aggravated. And given that the next sentence says they were plotting to kill him, let's go with severely aggravated for a definition here. He got under their skin. He annoyed them. And they were having a problem with him. And now... He became the enemy, and they were out to plot against him. But his new message had changed everything. As the hunter became the hunted, something was still very different in Saul's heart. He will later write about the kind of warfare and spell out the kind of details in the fight, in the warfare that now you and I are very much involved with, with gospel armor, no longer wrestling against flesh and blood. So he was with a brute squad, handcuffs, ready to drag people into prison. Those were the enemies of God, so he thought. 
That was his method to apprehend them, send them into prison. Now he's arguing, persuading, using scripture, debating, appealing to, explaining. And he's equipped with what you and I have been told to be equipped with for this kind of battle, the armor of God. Hmm. A belt of truth, a breastplate of righteousness, shoes of readiness with the gospel of peace, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The whole battle is different now. Everything is different. Not only does he have new enemies, there's a whole new way of fighting, a whole new way of doing battle. looks entirely different from the old way that he had. Third point, Saul's new friends. He's got a new message. He's got new enemies, and now he has new friends. I see this really as the main point of this section that we read. It's about Saul getting incorporated into the church, recognizing who his new friends are, his new family is. We have the most unlikely convert with old enemies are now about to become his new friends. You have to imagine for a short time, this man must have felt like he did not have a friend on the planet. He was opposing and persecuting Christians. Then he becomes a Christian. Not many Christians were convinced that he was really changed. They don't trust him. All his old buddies, he's now forsaken, and they want to kill him. You talk about a man without a country, he must have for some time here felt like he did not have a friend on the planet. Saul was every Christian's worst nightmare. And now he's knocking on the door of the church. Can you imagine? Um, what about discernment? What about wisdom? What about protecting the flock? What are we supposed to do with this guy? Is this a ruse? Is he playing double agent? Is he trying to sneak his way in to cause more trouble in the church? We don't know what's going on here. Can we really trust this guy? Getting Saul incorporated into the church was not an easy task, but with the help of a few good friends, God's Spirit accomplishes it, and he's brought in. And the Christianity successfully spread throughout the known world because of it. It is not difficult for you and I to trace the existence of this church to this man's missionary efforts. And you realize at this pivotal point in church history, he could just as easily have not been incorporated into the New Testament church. It was touch and go. It was challenging. It was difficult. But he had some new friends. And they helped make it happen. First, we read last week about Ananias. First, very reluctant. God's spirit talked to him. Go to a man named Saul and pray for him. Okay, wait a minute. I've heard of this guy. He means our harm. Lord, 
Are you sure? Ananias happened to have enough of the fear of the Lord in his heart to obey. Without this, he would have been overcome with fear and suspicion, sure that he was walking into a trap. Think about the reality of this. Somebody is out to get you. They are assertive. They are violent. They're willing to just have you thrown in prison, but their real goal is to have you executed. That's the end game. You've got a target on your back. And you're praying one day, and God tells you, I want you to go to that person and pray for them. What would you do? You say, but Lord, I've heard about them. And yet Ananias went. And when he approached him, he said, Brother Saul, Brother Saul, Saul, my brother. That's how he walked into the room. You have to appreciate the faith of this man to look at the enemy of the church, the persecutor of the church, walk into the house where he's staying, the Airbnb where Saul is booked, and say, Saul, my brother, the Lord sent me to pray for you. And he did. He talked to him. He prayed for him. He regained his sight. He was filled with the Spirit. He was informed about his ministry. I was sitting in our living room this past Wednesday night during our bridge course, looking around the room and thinking of folks like Jeanette and Jeff and Roxanne and looking at the people who invited the people that were sitting in my living room and just gave me a fresh appreciation for the faith and the courage and the boldness. And I know many of you have invited others. And if you have and they said no, please keep inviting them. Because the second or the third or the fourth time around, they might say yes, and they might end up sitting in my living room, and we're having a great discussion about the things of the kingdom of God, and you never know what the Lord's going to do. But thank God there's some friends out there that have enough faith and courage and imagination to see what God might do if you have the boldness to walk up to somebody and say, I'd like to invite you. I think you might enjoy being a part of this. Would you come? Ananias was a true friend. William Barclay, one old-time commentator, said he's really one of the unsung heroes of church history. That man made all the difference, and we're here today because of his faith, his willingness to obey. Another set of friends helped Saul escape. These are the rope holders. The guys holding the rope when they let him out of the city wall. So the plot to kill him. So the timeline here is we've got about three-year period where Saul is in Damascus, but somehow apparently during that time he left and went to Arabia for a time, made a trip to Arabia, which was not far away, and returns to Damascus, and he's there. He's there for a total of three years, and from there he's going to go on to Jerusalem. During that time, so he goes to Arabia, who has a king, who has a governor overseeing Damascus, 
whom he assigned to watch for Saul. Keep an eye on the city gates because I want you to capture Saul when he tries to leave. He's in danger again. So his friends, interestingly enough, it says his disciples. And so we've got a little clue here that his ministry is already bearing fruit. He's already led people to the Lord and he has his disciples around him. And so in the middle of the night, in the dark of night, they let him out of the city wall in a basket, lowering him with ropes. Now, I got to tell you something. If somebody is lowering you with ropes in a basket down a city wall, you better trust that they are your friends. This story is filled with all kinds of sort of hidden risks. Can you imagine? Okay, so you're one of the rope holders and you're letting him down. And Saul is just a third down. And you stop and you say, by the way, Saul, just wanted you to know both my brother and sister are in prison because of you. Feeling a little rope burn on my hands about now. I'm not sure I can hold on to this any longer. Do you understand all the undercurrents and all the animosity and all the problems that, that have been accumulating around this man's life? And who he was determined were the enemy, now he's in their camp and they are suspicious of him. Everybody's on heightened alert. Who's who? Who's on what team? It's like a kind of a spy game going on here. Who can you trust? Who's out to get you? And yet he had some friends, some disciples that were willing to hold those ropes and lower him down to safety. And he made his escape. And then there's Barnabas. Saul leaves Damascus after three years and he goes to Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem to meet up with some of the apostles, which he had not met yet, has not spent any time with them, and now it was time. Now, Jerusalem where, is where it all began. It's kind of headquarters for the New Testament church. All the big names are there. The apostles are there. It's headquarters. Leadership is coming from there. Major decisions are taking place there for the church. The apostles are the gatekeepers, the discerning ones, the protectors of the flock. And now we have Saul knocking on the doors of the church, so to speak. And they are on the inside of the church, knowing that Saul is on the outside knocking on the doors and saying, don't open it. We don't trust him. He's playing us. I don't believe he's really converted. It can't be. I don't think he's actually a Christian, so don't open the doors. And so there was a stalemate. Saul on the outside, apostles on the inside, and they couldn't get together until a friend named Barnabas comes onto the scene. Barnabas, his name, son of encouragement. We've seen him back in Acts chapter 4. He was one of those very generous 
persons who owned some property and sold it and gave the proceeds to the apostles so that this wonderful verse, there was not a needy one among that community because of God's provision there in and through the grace of giving of this man named Barnabas. And Barnabas takes Saul. Some commentators would say, took him by the hand. Come with me, Saul, and I will take you to the apostles. And so he gets an audience with the apostles, and he says, I want to tell you Saul's testimony. Because they wouldn't believe it if Saul told them. But they believed it because Barnabas told them. Barnabas had a reputation with them. They knew him. They trusted him. And he was willing to mediate, to stand in the gap, to take Saul, this new brother in the Lord, to the apostles and explain how the Lord met him, spoke to him, and how Saul responded by preaching so boldly this message of Christ. Only in hindsight can we really appreciate the significance of Saul's acceptance into the church at Jerusalem. This was major point in church history, and it will come up again in the New Testament of Saul needing to make this identity, this connection with him and the church in Jerusalem. He is to go on and be the apostle to the Gentiles. The Gentile church and the Jerusalem church, the Jewish church, for those to be recognized as one in the same body could not be more significant. We might today not think too much about that, but the potential of there being two Christian churches, a Jewish one and a Gentile one, was highly probable. And this man, Saul, worked diligently to make sure that did not take place, for that would undermine his new message. For the new message was the grace of God to all people. And he worked overtime to make sure he had to connect with the apostles in Jerusalem and make that identity connection that there is one church universal, whether Jew or Gentile. Because one man was able to see past this man's past sins and see the grace of God at work in him. The faith, the vision, the insight of a man named Barnabas, who was observing all this going on, was willing to step in and be the friend that Saul needed at this crucial moment. History was made because Barnabas said, let me take you by the hand and I will get you an audience with these guys and I will tell them your story. John Stott writes this, true conversion always issues in church membership. It is not only that converts must join the Christian community, but that the Christian community must welcome converts, especially those from a different religious, ethnic, or social background. 
there is an urgent need for modern Ananiases and Barnabases who overcome their scruples and hesitations and take the initiative to befriend newcomers. Do you realize how the gospel is at stake that this room be open and eventually filled with such a diversity of people from a variety of backgrounds, from a variety of social strata, because the gospel is for all, and all need to be welcomed in. And if you've been around church long enough, you probably are aware of the temptation to say, we're kind of comfortable here, we know each other quite well, we seem to get along fairly well, we're enough alike, you and I, one another, we can have nice, comfortable Sunday meetings. And why don't we keep it that way? And we can't. Because right at that moment, we would so undermine the wonder of this new message, this new gospel. This requires faith in our hearts, courage, and boldness uh, in our soul. So, in conclusion, worship team, you could come on up. So instead of being filled with reservation and hesitation and suspicion, the church instead is armed with the right message. Jesus is the Son of God. The church has now identified the right enemies and how to fight them. The church is now joined together with new friends, the body of Christ, the church. And here, Luke, with these things in place, writes this wonderful summarizing statement, so the church throughout Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So do you understand that summary statement was written while there were still plots to kill people? There was still disagreement, there was still persuasion needed, there was arguing and debating going on, all kinds of things were being sorted out, and nevertheless, with all that, the right things were in place, and here comes the statement. The church was at peace. It was thriving. People were walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and the church multiplied. The very power of the gospel continued to thrive, continued to work, continued to reach the lost, continued to add to the church. So friends, as long as we live in this fallen world, for as long as we await the return of the Savior, is there really a better description to describe the church as it ought to be? Our friend Stephen Foster at the beginning said, there's no perfect church. Were you looking for one? Are you here expecting one? You'll be waiting a long time. Or you'll be waiting until the Lord returns. Could you think of a better way for us to be described? Church had peace, was being built up. We're walking in the fear of the Lord. And we're walking in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. There's the goal. With all things in place, the message, the right enemies, the right friends, and the Lord multiplied. Let's stand together.